Hello, and welcome to Screaming Bloody Oranges, the Invisible Oranges podcast. I am Andrew Rothman, Editor-in-Chief, and we are thrilled to have Andrew Lee of Rip to Shred's Death Metal fame on as our guest for this special interview episode. Join us as we talk identity, culture, heavy metal, and more. We've got Langdon Hickman on the line as well, but John Rosenthal will start our discussion. Go ahead and kick it off, John. So, Andrew, I kind of wanted to start with a big question. Uh, this is something that you had posted about a few months ago about a review that you got where this person lamented that what you had recorded lacked Taiwanese oh. folk elements. So for this kind of racist dialogue that's going on, what do you have to say to the people who want that from Rip to Shreds? Oh, man. Um, there's a lot to unpack there. Because the, the first thing is is that, you know, I don't listen to folk metal, and um, I think folk metal is kind of lame, but, you know, whatever. Th the main issue I have with putting that sort of thing in Rip to Shreds is that, you know, I'm not really Taiwanese, right? I'm, my parents are Taiwanese. They were born and raised there, but, you know, I grew up in America. Uh, I I've lived in California my whole life, you know? So that kind of uh, traditional if you want to call it traditional music, just it's not part of my DNA. It's it's not, you know, like the music I listened to growing up. It's, I mean, it's a part of my heritage, right? But it's like, it, it's a whole world away from me. And it's just not something I really feel like has anything to do with me. So when I think about people saying, oh, you need to put... You know, this sort of specific cultural crap in your music. It's like, you know, for me, that's that's just American music, right? Um, I mean, yeah, in, in a sense, you know, being raised as like a first-generation immigrant in America, you know, you're kind of sitting in between two cultures. Like you have on one hand your American culture that you're raised in that you kind of experience every day of your life and on the other hand you have your parents culture which they were raised in and you know they bring here and they have to find some way of uh uh bring you up in both cultures you know but um i don't know it just frustrates me because you know, it, it's not what i do you know i don't really know anything about it so it's not something i could uh, authentically put in my music anyways. Uh, Langdon, did you have something you wanted to say? Oh, no, I was, I was just listening to his response there. I was, I was, it, it makes an amount of sense to me because my partner is, is also of, of, uh, is, is part East Asian and has similar kinds of experiences with people where there is, seems to be this presumption of, connectivity to a culture that for her it was it was her grandmother was the immigrant and so at that point it's it's not even just a single it's multiple generations removed uh you know just that that sounds incredibly infuriating to to hear especially because having gotten familiar with your music first from like just listening to your records um didn't know anything about, you know, anyone in the band, didn't know about any... It's very clearly death metal. I have no idea why they'd be like, why isn't there folk metal in this? And be like, where's the house music? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's death metal, but where's the house music? <laughs> I, mean, I, like I think they see... Um, 
they see like some some of my song titles are in Chinese. You know, everything is clearly about Chinese history. So they come up with this presumption that you know, oh, if it's not, uh, if if it's not like explicitly Western images or themes, then it needs to be some kind of, you know, it, it also needs to incorporate some kind of musical culture, not just what the music is about, you know. Um, which I don't know, man, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. You can't just expect that kind of, I don't want to say culture cause that's very reductive, but you, you can't expect that kind of mirror in music cause there's, you know, the themes and the actual music and you can't be like, well, they have to be this one thing. It just, it seems ludicrous that, you know, things have to be so ontologically singular. It also seems to misunderstand like what culture is, not like the the image of culture, but like the reality of someone's actual lived passions and interests of a heritage like that, that becomes definitionally what what culture is. So like you can't you can't make something outside of that because you become the embodiment of it. Like I can't exist outside of the construct of whiteness in America that's not something within my power, but I become reflective of it through lived actions. And it becomes this weird, like, people inventing a caricature, and it's like, no, you have to live inside of this tiny thing. You can't simply be of a background and live your life and have those two be naturally connected because of that. No. We have to force an obvious and, like, uh, caricaturized uh, connection. Otherwise, I don't see it. It's like, well, maybe you're just really dumb. Like, just like. I feel like people, I mean, everyone, you know, consciously or unconsciously categorizes people, you know, just to, I guess, maybe it makes more sense for them to, when they meet someone new, right? They see the way someone looks and they have all these assumptions based on, I don't know, their past prejudices or past experiences or whatever, right? And it makes a little more sense for them when they meet someone immediately. Oh, you're, you know, you you look white. So you have all these uh, experiences and I know how I'm supposed to interact with you or some, something like that. So I don't think it's always necessarily like malicious or whatever, but, you know, it's just kind of like, in an instinctual way that we interact with uh, new people we meet. And it's kind of something that you have to like, you, you have to consciously overcome and think about, I think. I mean, <clears throat> I think about the first big extreme metal uh, experiences with East Asian music. When you think about like Katonic and there was a little bit of the like, exotification of it and uh you know you have the air who and the pipa and people kind of grow to expect that and there is a little bit of that the uh the underlying prejudices and racism that comes with it and uh it's, it's something that people need to break from and i think that reviews like that not to stomp on that person for writing that review i don't think they meant it maliciously but it is an example of that kind of underlying problem yeah, I think um I think people definitely kind of expect that from East Asian bands 
And I think uh, whether consciously or unconsciously, it's kind of the those folk metal bands are the type of bands to get written about in uh, in music publications. You know, you think about um, you know the Who or uh, I don't what was Nature's Tanker Cavalry or yeah. you know like Chthonic. And um, these are all kind of uh, very specifically. Mm, I mean, to me, they're they're kind of like just they're they're an Asian version of like Ammon Amarth sort of, you know, because Ammon Amarth has that uh, that whole Viking uh, image. And then when people look at you know folk metal bands from Asia, they see you know like oh Mongol horde image or. Uh, you know, and then it, it it makes like kind of simple package for them to understand. Um, whereas, you know, if they look at just any uh, shit, like any any Japanese grind band or death metal band, I mean, are are there really a whole lot of uh, Asian bands that aren't? Uh, like explicitly running on cultural themes that, you know, kind of get big outside of Asia. I'm talking about like our kind of specific extreme metal space, I guess. Sure. Cause I mean, like my first thought would go to someone like Unholy Grave, but they aren't in that elevated extreme metal kind of thing. Right. I think, um, in the in the underground, you know, you obviously have Unholy Grave, you have uh, like CSSO or you know like Coffins now, but hmm. in general, I'm not really sure who the like the big Japanese bands are now. Like just looking outside of our little circle that we normally listen to, I'm I'm sure it's like some sort of like metalcore or Visual K thing. <laughs> I honestly don't know. It's uh, There's a big gap in my knowledge there. I know Deer and Gray has been sort of on like on the up for about maybe a decade in America. Like each record actually like gets more and more coverage and they've gotten like Rolling Stone coverage not too mm-hmm. long ago. And obviously Boris is huge, but I'm not I'm not sure how much we lump Boris into metal or if they just sort of if they're their own thing. <laughs> Yeah, and like keeping it within the extreme, if you put the that word in quotes, air quotes, like metal space, like Boris, I don't think necessarily occupies that. But you mentioned coffins from Japan. And I think maybe tying back to something you said earlier was, um, you know, that that coffins album, maybe I, I think a few people reacted like, wow, this is like OSDM, but it's from Japan. And it's like, why can't OSDM come from Japan? You know they had old school death metal <laughs> in Japan, right? It's, like it's, that, they, they also heard those yeah. albums. Like, so it's like <laughs> I think a sound gets associated with a locality, and those things in at least heavy metal. I can't speak for maybe other genres of music or even art. Maybe locality and 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 um, I think the sound or the theme or whatever genre classification we give to something like those two things don't always connect, and maybe sometimes they seem they like they do, but then they really don't. So, I mean, locality I mean, is I definitely key. Oh, go ahead. Go Sorry. Ahead. Oh, yeah. So I, I was just going to say that I think, um, you know, before the internet really 
took off like late 90s there were obviously like you know regional sounds right because tape trading is i mean they they did tape trading right but it's very slow and mainly you you get to hear like the big bands and the bands that are like live next to your next to your house right so there kind of comes a regional sound but I, i don't know if like how how valid the regional sound thing still is in 2020 no but regionality is still pretty key when it comes to like popular music I mean, I remember when I was in high school, you have the people who exotified Rammstein because their lyrics were in German, or they would mm-hmm. kind of castigate me because I listened to music that you couldn't really understand the words, which I guess makes it its own language, as it were. So locality, as far as like ethnocentrism and stuff like that, is definitely key when it comes to when you get out of the underground and even in the underground. But I feel like it comes in at different layers and shades at different different spots, you know. Trying to like, it's not so much about where something is from, but knowing about when that's important to take into consideration and when it's not. So, like Andrew, you'd mentioned like you know, of your of your actual background, like it's important to you, like that. Let's say more ethnic music, um, but at the same time, it's not who you are because you're also American. Um, so mm. it's like you recognize it, you know, it's there, um, but you give it, you know the level of importance you think it has at a, at a given time. So for ripped or shreds, it sounds like, it sounds like that, I guess that sound that other people might've wanted to hear or expected, or for whatever reason wanted to be there, you know, that sound isn't necessarily like unimportant to you. It's just, it doesn't make sense in this ripped to shreds context, maybe. So. I mean, it, I, I agree with Andrew, uh, especially with the question as it pertains to 2020, because the Internet has been this massive shift in terms of like a human geographical problem, where if we think of geography less as just like the literal planet and more map making, like you make a map and you see how far things are from one another. The Internet has completely jumbled up what before seemed like a pretty obvious order, like you're close or far away from New York or close or far away from Chicago. And those by having a big concentration of people are going to have a concentration of art spaces. They're going to have interconnectivity there. They're going to build their own relation to things. I mean, we still somewhat see that where we have like New York experimental heavy metal is becoming its own little wing where there's even a lot of New York bands that used to be black metal, but that I don't think black metal describes them best anymore coming out of New York, where it seems more that it's experimental heavy metal. Like, no knock to it, it's just it clearly is moving into a different kind of space. But for everywhere that isn't a major city, the question of how close or far are you, you could be 30 miles out from New York and have more sonic similarity to underground bands from Tokyo, even though you're on a completely different continent. And so I think that 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 kind of notion of like how we relate to space and what you would consider local can now... People have a very old mindset where they try to apply it to a physical map of the world and not necessarily our relational map to the world. Mm-hmm. I think um, if I think of regional sounds right now, um, I think there's like an impression that the Pacific Northwest has a bunch of death doom, right? That's like the the big thing. Ossuarium, ritual necromancy, uh, 
Shrine of the Serpent, I, I guess, a whole bunch of like 20 bucks spin bands, right? But I don't know how much that's based around um, a regional sound and, you know, how bands are made of like the same five people just in 20 different configurations, you know, because like, like here in the Bay, <laughs> right, we have Acephalix, we have Vastum, Mortuous, and um, a whole bunch of other different bands down here that are great. But I mean, they're just the same five people, <laughs> you know? So it's to me, like that kind of similarity is not really a regional thing. It's just, you know, the same people making music just slightly different. And all those people were making atmospheric black metal like 10 years ago. <laughs> well, it's true. I mean, you, you and I've been seeing this a lot with various American scenes, especially where, you know, people are making black metal and black metal is popular for a very long time. But now the, the scales are kind of tipping toward death metal and not to call people as trend they hoppers. should <laughs> <laughs> not to call people trend hoppers because this has been very natural. But there's been a natural progression to this very atmospheric kind of death metal. And uh, it's been happening. I mean, you know, you look at Blood Incantation and how Paul came from the black metal scene. Uh, Mortiferum, Alex Modi was in uh, Vestiges, which was like a neo-cross black metal band, etc. It's just, um, it's people becoming heavier over time. They grew Not towards physically. the light of God. I wonder what it is about the regionality at least of the Pacific Northwest because I feel like there's part of it is that a certain sound comes from that region I don't want to deny like that maybe more bands than not compared to other areas have that sort of like death doom atmospheric sort of post Cascadian feel to it Um, but at the same time I wonder how much is it just PR and filtering that tells us what bands are there as opposed to actually going there and finding like bands that don't get website coverage or don't have their band camps set up or aren't up to speed on selling their material. I wonder like what underground discoveries lay beneath sort of that like facade of, Oh, we're all the sort of same type of sound. And I think that same logic can be applied to anywhere in the world. Like if you go to Tokyo and you start digging around, you're going to find stuff that you can't just type in like Google Japanese death metal and and just find. Like, I think there exists even another layer where even things become more hard to discern. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe Andrew, you have some perspective on that. You mean specifically regional sounds versus uh, what's kind of like undiscovered in that area? Yeah, because like Rip to Shreds, I mean, I think you've gained some popularity over the years, but you started out, I'm sure, with nothing, just like so many other, you know, mm. projects or bands. And then so maybe you've seen sort of what reception was like in the early days versus getting more coverage now. I mean, you're on podcast now. People want to talk to you. So it's kind of an interesting ramp up in in the music. Yeah. yeah. It's really hard for me to say because mm. I'm not... Like, even now, I'm not really part of, you know, like, the Bay Area scene. I know, I mean, just because, you know, I have to, you know, uh, go to some shows, uh, talk to, like, printers or whatever. So, I obviously end up knowing some people. But, you know, in general, I'm really kind of 
disconnected from the Bay Area scene, and I've never really been a part of the Bay Area scene. So I guess you could probably consider Rip to Shreds as like one of those um, bands that aren't wouldn't really have had an opportunity to take you know any influence from local bands. You know, um, I, I wasn't really ever going to you know like local shows that uh, any, any of. I think we we have a really terrible one close to my house called the X Bar. That I mean, maybe I shouldn't say that, but that that venue is really sad. Um, there are... We every city has one. Every city has one where it's like we we just can't go there. <laughs> in Chicago, that place was called the Metal Shaker. May it rest in peace. Yeah, but um, so I I I think. There has to be, you know, it's difficult when you are kind of like a fresh new musician to break into your local scene. You know, Um, it's difficult for you to kind of gain the uh, credibility for other people to take you seriously. You know, you want to join a band, but, um, you know, you talk to people in established bands and they're like, you know, kind of busy kind of got a lot of stuff going on we don't have time to be in a band with you you know so i think um if it's a bunch of musicians like that they don't really have an opportunity to take kind of uh the sound of other musicians more established musicians in that area just based on not you know having the right connections or not having the credibility Yeah, it's almost like on your Bandcamp page, what if it said location internet? Would that make more sense to you than location like California? I mean, mm. in a way, it is from death metal from California, but in a way that, it, like you described, it's also not. It's hard think, to say, because uh, no, no one really wants to be from the internet. <laughs> yeah. I'm certainly from the internet. <laughs> I feel like a part of me is, too. <laughs> it's like... You, yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird reality, I guess, because you couldn't have imagined this twenty years ago, thirty years ago. Posting is uh, its own realm. Yeah. Hmm. What is? Uh, posting. Uh, hosting. Posting is its own realm. Oh. You know, I mean, as we know, I, LinkedIn I is the internet. <laughs> I I wouldn't really consider myself uh, from the internet. You know, I mean, I still I still have a. Uh, real bandmates from like around here in the Bay Area. Um, they are. I, I had them play on a secret recording that will hopefully be released next year. <laughs> but um, I think at this point, I do consciously take some. I mean, so at the very start, you know, maybe it would have made sense, you know, to put internet as the. Uh, as the location of the band, you know, simply because I didn't really have any real connection to the local Bay Area scene. But now, you know, um, taking influences, you know, from Vastum or Cephalix or, uh, you know, like a, a Stormcrow or just being in bands like Spinebreaker or having 
band members of local bands. You know, I think Rip to Shreds kind of starts to take on more of our regional sound than before, I guess. And as we described before, whatever that regional sound is may be nebulous in itself. Like, who knows really what it is at the same time? I mean, like, yeah. I, I would say if we can define a regional sound, it's just whatever's made up of the musicians that are the most active musicians that are in that area putting stuff out, working together. Yeah, that seems like the most logical way to lay it out. Like you could apply that to anywhere, really, like that rule, like, and that's mm. the, that's the filter more or less that creates that regional sound we hear, you know, how it works out with whoever's most popular working together. Right. I mean, we, yeah, I mean, I'm the... sure they're, sorry. Oh no, you, you go on. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm sure there are a lot of, uh, I mean, I know there are a lot of, you know, bands down here in the Bay Area that don't fit that kind of preconceived um crusty uh kind of bolt throwery kind of autopsy-ish bay area death metal sound you know that i associate with you know bands like vastum or necrot or mortuous but um you know there's a whole lot of small bands down here um one of my friends is like doing kind of like a discord style a uh, brutal death metal band um they're I mean, and like some of the bands that we played with, uh, when when we played a show here, before before quarantine, right? That was like seven months ago now, and um, they they aren't really big, and so they don't really. If uh, you know some website were to look at them, they wouldn't immediately say, "Oh, this is the Bay Area sound," right? And then so I I think what Andrew said about um this kind of filter of media coverage definitely plays a big part in defining what is or isn't a regional sound. So you said disgorge, which disgorge? This is important. Uh, Cali disgorge. Okay. Not, that, not, not, not Mexico disgorge. Both are an acceptable answer, but <laughs> it's cool to hear that there's like some Cali disgorge worship going on. So something that I learned from perusing your Facebook very briefly that I didn't I've listened to a bunch of your records. So I've listened to the um, the uh, the grind time records at which I've I've I can't keep from cackling uh, when I'm listening to them. It's just so fun and also really brutal. <laughs> and then, like, I love Rip to Shreds. That was just where I like first learned Thank about you. your work and just think it's fantastic. I didn't realize that you can shred like a motherfucker. Like shred shred. Oh yeah. That that was a pleasant surprise for me. I'm sitting here and I'm like, is that under a glass moon? Is this man shredding something? And I'm like, I cannot believe that I'm seeing this right now. This is I'm just sitting clapping at my phone. I'm like, I am so happy. Andrew, before you start, Langdon, have you seen the Arch Aganini videos yet? No. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll let Andrew talk about that. Uh, they're they're supposed to okay so uh, Arch Arch Agonini was like kind of a joke Um, one of one of my internet friends brought up uh, I think I think it was um, I think it was Tom from Organ Dealer 
Not sure. Maybe maybe another guy. Yeah, but basically, it's a uh, uh, art. It's Paganini shredding on top of a Agathocles style mince core, and then um, one of my friends, um, Tapo from First Days of Humanity. I think he's finishing his side of the split tonight, so maybe tomorrow there will be an arch, a full Arch Agonini split up on Bandcamp. <laughs> Wait a minute, there's a first days of humanity? <laughs> yeah, first days of humanity. Holy crap, that made my day. Dude, I love that guy. Tap, Tapo is one of the most ridiculous musicians, I think, in the underground grind community. That dude can, like, do... He, he can do anything... That's amazing. I mean, I think about the, uh, oh man, who was it? Who did the, uh, the Gorgrind suite or something like that? Was it torso fuck or was it, um, cause it, they would have like, they, they did a small analysis of it. It was like strophe and then they just did blasting. It was chorus <laughs> blasting solo. And then it was just someone hitting one note and it just kept going like that. I can't remember <laughs> if it was torso fuck or excrementory grind fuckers or something like that, but uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> I have to find it because you will love that. So, of course, you know, when talking about Rip to Shreds, we have to talk about Swedish death metal because there's a lot of Swedish oh, yes. death metal going on in there. So I was curious, in your perspective, and I know you've posted about this online, so I don't want to give it away, but what is the perfect example of Swedeth to you? Okay. So there, there's an answer on an album basis, and there's an answer on a song basis. So, I mean, obviously, the ultimate Swedeth record is Left Hand Path. Um, you know, I, 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 I like I like Everflowing Stream. It's a great record. It's not Left Hand Path. Uh, I'm scouting. I mean, er, 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 <laughs> everything about Left Hand Path is just perfect. You know, like it's 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 got um, it's got those ridiculous DB parts. And it has all the really like guttural riffs that it's not it's not nearly as melodic as Everflowing Stream, obviously. But there's like just in a punky energy in there that I don't think Dismember had. And there's also, you know. I mean, maybe this comes out more specifically on the title track and uh, maybe like Morbid Devourment or Abnormally Deceased. There's also like kind of a drama in some of Entomb's more melodic moments that I think Dismember doesn't really have. But yeah, that's my answer for the ultimate Sweet Death record. On the other hand, I think the best like single song is probably um, Nirvana 2002's uh, "Morning." Ooh, I think I, I don't. I don't know which demo it came off exactly. It's the one that sounds good, not the one that sounds like <laughs> <laughs> it was recorded on a on a boombox. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, every like every single riff is perfect, and the drum i mean i have some complaints about the drums on uh left hand path because i think they like they recorded it on an e-kit but with real symbols that's what i think it was because um you know back like back in the early late 80s early 90s that that sunlight studios didn't have a real drum kit 
in the uh, in the studio. So it's like half e kit, half real kit. And then so I I don't like the snare sample on on left hand path that much. But whatever the I don't know if they used a real kit on on uh, on that Nirvana recording or if it's like just a better sample. But er everything about that Nirvana recording is just like absolutely perfect. So when we you look at so that's, me that, psychic that's pain. My <laughs> Sorry. I'm going to Google an image of the uh, album cover for Everflowing Stream and I'm going to apologize to it silently now. <laughs> it's still a good record. It's just it's 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 just That's not right, left-hand it's path. good. Langdon, you have to remember that left-hand path has papyrus power. That because shit. Yeah. Oh, that's that, so that, true. That is very That's important. a hard as hell font. And I, and Dismember has, you know, they ended up not making, you know, like 10 fucking awful records in a row. So they have that. Uh, yeah. It's funny because our former editor, uh, Joseph Schaefer, he hard stands rock and roll era entombed, like super into it. And he I've and I had do arguments. Not agree. <laughs> <laughs> we are uh, we are dead opposed on that. <laughs> I, I'll go up to you know Wolverine Blues because I think Wolverine Blues is like a super super sick album. I, I like I, I don't like all Death and Roll, you know, because like like Zizma, I don't really get Zizma. Oh but, man, you know Swan Song and uh, Wolverine Blues, I will go to bat for, but nothing after Wolverine Blues. If I had my Swan Song cassette on hand, I would show it to the camera because I love that album, and I don't know why people shit all over it. Because it's bad, John. Because Langdon, it's bad. <laughs> you come here right now. I will fight you and then probably give you a hug, even though it's quarantine. I love to make people mad by telling them that I think Surgical Steel is the best carcass record because it's the best carcass record. Ooh, that's yeah, such a hard agree for me, Langdon. Langdon, you and I will be buried together with that thought. Drink it up. Um, <laughs> I fully agree. Uh, I will. I, I will agree that Surgical Steel is better than Necroticism, but. Oh, it's man. not better than uh, it's not better than Reek. It's not better than Heartwork or Symphonies or Swan Song. You're it's about to start so many Swan internet Song. fights right now. Damn. <laughs> Seriously, so many internet I fights. Mean, just I, from I that think one most people clip. wouldn't agree with my carcass take because. Uh, but uh, people people love Symphonies, right? You're either in that like Symphonies and Necroticism group, or you're in the Heartwork group. And surgical steel, and you don't like you don't really like the early stuff as much. But for me, if I had a rank carcass, it would go um, peel sessions and that the flesh ripping demo. I, I don't know why the, the flesh ripping demo sounds way better than Reek. Um, it is pretty good. Who whoever mixed Reek like <laughs> really fucked up, right? <laughs> but, uh, and then and then after that, heart work. And then, you know, symphonies and reek about the same level. Then comes Swan Song, then Surgical Steel, then Necroticism. I can't stand Necroticism. I don't like it. It's like what? it's like it's like halfway between the gore shit and the melodic shit. And it just it, it, it doesn't commit to one or the other. It's just like fence sitting, and I don't like it. I just so good. It the it's the record where they began to learn how to read. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a uh, gate creeper who called their music GED riffs. <laughs> I think I think that's more, a more apt example of GED riffs. 
not to not to shit on anyone who got their GED. That's awesome. Good job. I, I thought no, it, Gate it's more of like stadium. are the riffs like just ignorantly heavy or are they smartly heavy? And like both are heavy. Like we get it. It's awesome. <laughs> but no. There's a time and a place for death metal for for when you can't read and death metal for when you can and do read. Absolutely. Are, that, that's the beauty of death metal. I once I actually got chastised by someone once for referring to uh, a death metal record in a piece of writing as extremely fucking ignorant. And they were like, the band isn't going to take that well. And I'm like, no, they will. They make death metal. They know what I'm saying. It's like, they're going to be really upset. I'm like, then they don't play death metal. If they play <laughs> death metal, they know I'm complimenting them. <laughs> yeah, I think death metal is as, as a genre compared to maybe some of the others. I don't want to create genre comparisons because that's like boring talk. But um, there, Langdon, I, I fully agree. With you, and you, you've tweeted about this, too. Like, there's an ignorant, like, just dumbass side to death metal along with this hyper-intelligent, like, sort of, like, sharp mental side, a lot of it doing with the instrumentation and the songwriting and, and even the lyrics sometimes. But, like, the blend of those two often gets people off guard, I death think. Even like- even seasoned metalheads get a little weirded out by sometimes how d- dumb death metal is. But sometimes, think- like, dumb is fun, so I don't know. You know? That was a really good time to bring up Sanguishugabog because <laughs> they have like the dumbest riffs possible, but they tried so hard to make them so dumb that it's smart. Uh, are we going to talk cri- critically about uh, so Sanguine Sugabog? Yeah. Uh, don't I, like I, the I think, uh, yeah. I think there's something interesting about Sanguine Sugabog here. Is I was chatting with um, with Cody, the drummer, after after their gig in San Jose. And so I don't know if you guys like, do you guys watch a lot of drum videos, like drumming I do. Really? I'm a drum nerd. Okay. So you know you know how there's all that gospel chops shit, right? Oh yeah. So I think so Cody told me that his approach was to take um those super stupid riffs, right? And then he would he would just because when you listen, you know, he he's not just playing, you know, like tupa, 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 or just blasting, right? He he's doing a lot of interesting stuff on the drums, and he wanted to, or what what he told me was that he wanted to, kind of combine that gospel chops shredding. Um, I don't think polyrhythmics the right word, but you know, to to my ears, I, I'm not like really a trained musician, but to my ears, it doesn't fall uh, neatly on the four four grid. Um, it sounds like there's something else going on rhythmically there. And I think that's part of what makes Sangui Sukabog so interesting to me is that, you know, they can take those super stupid riffs and then put like this super complicated drumming on top of it. And then, you know, it becomes something great. It's not, it's stupid, yes, but it's not just stupid. As someone who actually doesn't really enjoy listening to that band... That's an interesting take that'll actually make me revisit that and listen for that specifically, and maybe I will find enjoyment. I was hearing that. Yeah. I was yeah. begrudgingly thinking the same thing. I was like, no, I don't like them, but that sounds really That sounds neat. fascinating. Like, yeah. Oh, it sounds like no, I would if like you that. Listen no. to the drumming, it's crazy. See, uh, a friend was over, uh, Andrew Jackson was over, and uh this is a very Jackson band. It's ignorant. It's mean. It's dumb. But it actually has some sort of substance to it. So I remember showing it to him. And here he is moshing around my living room. <laughs> it, it's that kind of music where you just... Uh, I was I was talking with Aaron Turner the other day. And uh, he talked about the physical reaction to music. 
and how that's like a, a high compliment to high praise for it because it makes you do something. And I saw that and that yeah. was really cool. Let me interject here because I think we've been saying dumb, I think maybe in the wrong <laughs> sort of way. I don't want to like call into like, I don't want to associate like Jackson with dumb music because he doesn't listen to dumb music <laughs> or anyone for that matter. I think what we mean to say really is physical music. And that's like where it doesn't appeal only to your cognitive sense, your sense of self, your emotions or your intellect. It appeals literally to your body's physical desire to react to something musical. And Visceral I think music pretty much. And while we say that the absence of the mental aspect is dumb, we can't just say that our bodies. I think are we call that mosh either. music. So like, I don't think my body is stupid. I think it does cool things. So uh, <laughs> we'll go with like, we'll go with like physical metal maybe from this point. So, but okay, that needless works. to say, yeah. Look, if they play death metal, they know exactly what we're trying to say. You're right. It's, it's dumb as fuck. <laughs> it's dumb as fucking shit. <laughs> when I hear hammer smashed face, I immediately grimace and I smash my head against my table. Normally the table breaks and then I pass out and I love it. It's what I live for. How far have you made it into that song, Langdon? About 14 seconds. But that's that, that's what Andrew means about physical metal, right? It, 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 it provokes a physical reaction in you. It's not just simple and brutal but i mean if, if you look at the tabs of uh <laughs> any of these riffs they're really we're all cracking stupid. up on video just like laughing with our eyes shut i love it uh, <laughs> it's hilarious andrew there was a do you follow we riff in a society on facebook mm, did you no, see the tab joke they made today no. that was perfect. what was it yes, yeah 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 no it's uh I'll, I'll have to send you a link andrew rothman mm. um there was a there was a guitar tab joke where someone was uh, talking about the intellectualism of their riffs, and it's just a really really dumb death metal riff. It, I, I I'm sorry, physical riff death metal I riff. At it. I, I mean, I, I think probably Julius posted that. It seems like a really Julius thing to post. <laughs> I don't know any of the people behind that page. I just oh, enjoy okay. it very much. Oh yeah, no, I I know all of them, so I can sort of spot it and be like, this one was Roman, or like this one's Julius. <laughs> A refined palette, I see. <laughs> yeah, I guess looking at death metal from that perspective of it's smart and it's dumb at the same time really turns it into something of its own thing. And I mean, I'll, I'll be with, I'll be, I'll be like high five and Langdon every fucking step of the way. Like death metal is so kick ass, and like I think that's what makes it so awesome is that it appeals to many senses of mine to include the intellectual but also just the brawly physical i will say the same about rip to shreds you know that shit rips i mean there's no way there's no two ways about it it just it just goes it also and shreds I think, yeah it does it's in the name <laughs> and i think i think andrew i think maybe consciously or not like you're you're putting an element of intellectualism into your music but also like that physical element too, where like, I think it really just belts. Like, I really just want to like beat my head to it. But at the same time, I can sit there in a really contemplative state and like, listen to all of the instrumentation and all the production that goes into it. And I'm like, well, it's interesting from that perspective too. So that's, I, I think that's, we're just talking about the appeal of death metal now, but I mean, those are cool things. Yeah. I think uh, definitely when, when I write um, riffs, for ripped to shreds i'm definitely thinking of you know kind of like what we're talking about the those physical kind of riffs that you know make you want make you want to get up and headbang and uh 
throw your beer against the wall, you know? And um, I think maybe what you're hearing when you, when, when you say you can hear something like intellectual about the music, I guess, for me, writing music is kind of like, uh, it, it has to have repetition, right? Um, cause that's what, that's what people latch on to. You know, if you play a riff once and you never play it again, people are like, you know, where'd that go? Or you turn into behold the octopus, which is very cool, but you know, that's kind of something totally different. So the question becomes, you know, how do you make repetition interesting? And there to me, it's where I can start bringing in different elements you know, of the drums you know, different leads. Um, maybe if I was doing like, uh, like tupa 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 with the with a hi hat, you know, switch to the ride. And to me, making interesting music is all about taking these, you know, simple patterns and giving people something to latch onto with those patterns, but um, creating interest by varying those patterns or bringing in new different elements you're sounding like holdsworth right now (laughs) 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 i i recall the first time i had shown andrew rothman ripped to shreds uh it was the my ep and uh i showed him i can't see the whole title but talisman to seal the hopping corpse and uh Mm. we had a very good time headbanging in his living room (laughs) it was it's like going back to physical music it's like that where you do have that that appeal to the lizard brain that just wants to move and freak out and fuck stuff up. But then there's also the intricacy of the riffs, which appeals to the other part of the brain. I don't I don't remember what the psycho like the psychological I guess we would just call it like the like the the professor part of the brain. The <laughs> like professor the brain? Maybe the, the the part of the brain that just gets tired of listening to the same damn thing over and over again and wants some like variation like Andrew was saying on variation on something familiar so it grooves and you get it but it's new and it's fresh and this it, is the beauty of yeah. death metal is I, that it appeals both to the genius absolutely. and to the super genius <laughs> <laughs> oh God, we've turned into one of those podcasts where everyone laughs at the same time <laughs> that's called am radio or, or fm radio in the morning on the way to work or something yeah we need a sound we need an arnold schwarzenegger soundboard yeah that'll solve all of our problems yeah <laughs> no, but, but that that was one of the elements of rip to shreds as well that that appealed to me when i heard uh your debut record probably around the same time that those guys did is you have a really firm sense of balance of the compositional elements like it isn't overwhelmed by you know d beat grooves it isn't overwhelmed by more progressive or filigreed stuff it doesn't you don't avoid solos but you also don't necessarily take like a four minute long it's it's a very well balanced sense of composition so that like i can't imagine someone who likes death metal walking away from a full record not having liked something that they've heard like that that would be very bizarre to me i think um part of that comes just down to the way that you know as a one-man band i don't I don't jam this stuff out with like a full band. I'm not trying to like figure out uh, where a song goes. You know, you know, I'm looking at the drummer and playing one riff over and over and he's like trying out different beats. And then we're like, okay, that part sounds good, you know? And then we kind of have to like keep it in our heads. I think 
I mean, I know, that's the way a lot of bands write, and a lot of bands come up with great stuff. But um, for me, working that way, it, it's kind of hard to get an image of the full song. And the way I do it, you know, I record short things into my DAW, and then, um, you know, I'm always listening back. You know, I chop up this bit, I delete this bit, you know, add some different drums here or there. And I think writing in that way kind of gives me just a better grasp of the entire song all at once, instead of trying to feel my way out through a single section one at a time and then kind of gluing stuff together, you know, with, uh, with um, a real drummer in the room. And so the way that um, I write with uh, some of my more collaborative bands, you know, we're sending these files back and forth, you know, but I think just exchanging you know, recorded music makes it a lot easier to to arrange stuff than jamming it out in the room. Or at least that's that's what I've found in my experience. So it's almost like two different methodologies leading to I guess different but equal. Like it's cool in both ways, it seems like. Yeah. Have you encountered any like I'd say difficulties as far as solo songwriting goes like not technical difficulties but roadblocks that you overcame that really kind of you felt like improved you or made you better at songwriting or maybe even more efficient but anything mm. challenge any big challenges that have come up or is it just been like you belt it out and it it, it, it gets it gets recorded so i guess i mean i i, I can't think of like any particular song that i find challenging because they're all kind of challenging in their own way um you know if i if i get stuck you know i have like maybe a minute of a song written and i play it back a whole bunch of times i'm like i like where it is but i have no idea where to take it you know it can take me you know a couple of days or even a couple of weeks before i can think oh that's that's what i need right there you know that's that's the right transition or the right riff and sometimes i have to like delete entire sections because I realized where it's going isn't really the right thing, you know, but I, it's hard for me to say that, you know, I really struggled with something because I don't know. I'm like, if, if I have, if I, if I feel stuck on a song or whatever, you know, I just put it down. I work on another song for a couple of weeks and I come back to it. And I'm like, oh, okay, I have some more ideas. So, I, I don't know that I would really say that I struggle with it so much. Um, mainly the part where I really hate myself is writing guitar solos because, oh, when you come up with a good riff, right? You're like, you know, okay, this is a sick riff. I'll just play it, you know, like 10 times and we'll call that a day. But when when I come up with a solo, I have, I have to think of ways to keep it, you know, interesting for like, up to a minute at a time and i can't i mean i can repeat elements you know but i can't just i i have to i feel like i have to come up with something fresh every step of the way and writing melodies you know that too is also that, that that's its own challenge I, I get really um annoyed when i see people say oh pop writing pop songwriting is so easy death metal is so much harder you know because the most important part is writing a good melody and 
pop melody writing is so ridiculously difficult. Maybe yeah. melody sometimes is like the key number one thing that's the hard thing to really find. Seems like sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes. I, I strongly believe that it's always the most difficult thing in songwriting is coming up with a good melody. And, you know, I mean, yeah, in death metal, we talk about, you know, ignorant riffs, you know, low-tuned chugging shit, but there has to be an element of melody in there that drags people in. I mean, unless you're talking about, you know, BDM, gore, whatever. But, you know, for, for the kind of death metal that we're talking about right now, I think melody is one of the most important parts of it. some high-end advice because i think we don't normally associate death metal with melody or at least people who may there's also people who don't listen to a ton of death metal maybe they listen to some and to them it's the least melodic thing they listen to um at least in like i guess their perception of how it sounds well, but so of, many bands are improved by great melody especially in death metal Part of this is something that like John and I have talked about a whole bunch, which is some of the um, bizarre and frustrating approach to nomenclature that we have that seems to only happen in the metal world. Like we refer to broadly like technical death metal as though a great deal of death metal that we would consider like outside of that doesn't demand like a tremendous amount to be able to like downpick these weird complicated finger twisting patterns like oh but it has no sweeps so it's not technical and it's like <laughs> what or for the same on the same end when it comes to death metal specifically we've kind of abused the term melody and melodic such that we think specifically like oh you mean like like children of bodom bullshit and it's like no no a melody Dude, is just like fucking awesome no Thank you. no <laughs> yes bodom rules <laughs> I mean, there's no say, two ways then. I'm, Langdon, you're I'm outnumbered and I don't like Derailing it. Langdon Hickman and his... Experiencing his psychic pain again. <laughs> but... Yow, yow, yow. But like when it comes to thought of melody, the, the kind of thing that, that it reads more like you're commenting on it is literally what melodies are, which is just like the lead contour of a song, like how, how the notes are falling. That's going to happen anywhere, but most people tend to tell themselves like, no, this is the melodic section, and now here's the rhythmic riff part. And it's like, when you do that, it makes sense on a certain on a certain end, because you're like, well, that's where the focus is. I'm thinking, you know, where is the central focus? But it can obscure the fact that, like, we, like we compare, you know, what makes certain death metal bands seem like they're more satisfactory than other death metal bands. How come we remember and talk about groups like entombed and dismember when there were you know untold numbers of demo only bands in the early 90s it was it was a glut like black metal arising as like a rebellion against death metal was because there were so fucking many death metal bands and it's partly because of those little touches of just like when i'm doing this very rhythmically driven riff i want these little melodic touches it's also part of why opeth whips so much sack <laughs> Don't anyone say anything negative about Opeth. No, absolutely no beautiful, Langdon. Um, <laughs> totally beautiful. But that last part was <laughs> no. Andrew Rothman. I shoehorned it in. Rothman, Love man, I, I think I'm you have just to fight fully you derailed my train of thought when you when, when you said that Opeth was good. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, man. I'm beginning to cry. <laughs> Are the two Andrews here like just sort of okay with Opeth? Is that 
Is my getting? Is that my read? I I I can't describe how much I can't stand Opeth. Oh, I like this guy. See, I'm glad we got this guy on the podcast. See, I don't go that far, but oh, this is rough. But uh, it's like everyone's I'm like Opeth, and I'm like, now. there they are. <laughs> no, I think that's that breadth, though that that range where people can hear different things and like we can be all right or hate Opeth and like but still survive together somehow. I'm going to be throwing out <laughs> no. Chicago time. Langdon's. I'm I'm going to be thinking like, oh, I love these rips. And also this man has made me sad before. (laughs) 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 What great power he wields. (laughs) Lingden, um, what what you said earlier about the uh, melody just being a contour of notes. I think, you know, a lot of people think of melody as just something consonant. You know, they don't they don't consider dissonance to be a melody you know if, if i think of a riff like um i don't know like frantic disembowelment you know that there that is a melodic riff you know you can you can hear the melody of the riff in that but it's not you know it's not sweet sounding it's it's not like a you know like a fucking soil work album right so people <laughs> don't associate that as a you know maybe it might make more sense to call melodeath like consonant melody death metal or something like that <laughs> see i like that idea where it's like you know you recognize melody in all sorts of music and pretty much all death metal even if it's dissonance but wait for this motorcycle to charge by on my extremely busy street um but at the same time it's like mellow death you're right is constantly melodic death metal. <laughs> it really I, is. I love that actually I, I'm, I gotta take that i hate it uh, constantly me- melodic death metal. I mean, I love Melodeath, but I like... I cannot stand that. I know Langdon's not like, a huge Melodeath fan. Yeah. Like, for me, when you think about, like... When you think about most of, like, the big, big death metal bands, we actually tend to think of them based on their approach to melody. Like, when you think about Immolation... Oh, oh yeah. The one good one... Yeah, of course. Okay, everyone likes... You can't see it. Jonathan is holding As, up uh, Slaughter of the Soul. Of everyone course. likes that album. That's the exception that proves the rule. You, that that one doesn't count. You know that. It counts. Also, that one gave us metalcore. So it, it, has, it has things to answer for. <laughs> hey, man. Darkest Hour was okay when they used their riffs. Darkest Hour is a very good band. I do like them. Yeah, they are. I'm when they used At the Gates' so. riffs. That's true. But um, like when I think about like immolation, the thing that's defining to immolation for me is that very imperial sense of of their melodic contour. It sounds like like Germanic imperial music. Um, when I think about Cannibal Corpse, there's that kind of like shifting semitone thing that they do that like, and we do this all the time. Like we even tend to associate like the black metal sound with a very specific, like just constant moving minor third stuff. I mean, obviously there is more to that to black metal. There's a whole lot more, but that's when like the quintessential, like I'm doing a black metal is when you do that. (laughs) And yet you find in a lot of people, they tend not to necessarily think about these components as much. And you wind up getting, that's where I've, find on like the listening and on the critical end the stuff that sort of falls through the cracks for me where i'm like i don't have anything to say about this because it doesn't feel like they tried very hard maybe they did and you know yeah i just you know i'd rather spend my time talking about the uh the death metal that that makes me think about you know celestial spore molds <laughs> i was just maybe, listening maybe to Demolic uh... yesterday <laughs> oh god i love that band 
maybe the point is to not put much effort into it. You know, oh, is birdsome a verboten uh, topic? <laughs> <laughs> uh, slightly, maybe, yeah. Uh, but I think the real point, of course, is like not in, not putting too much effort into it. So, I mean, it would go both ways. Like, don't put too much effort into um, trying to figure out what, what is verboten or not. Um, I don't know. Depends in the context, of course, like always. Rick to Shreds is now canceled because you said Burzum. <laughs> <laughs> You're allowed to say the word. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, we've all heard the band. We know what's bad about Varg. Mm -hmm. That part's obvious. You can Google it pretty easily. Yeah. No, he pretty big piece of shit. Yeah. No, I don't think anyone's going to deny that. I think that's pretty (laughs) uncontroversial. Yeah. I mean, I think there, there, there are certain bands, you know, where, you know, kind of like not really giving a fuck or not really it's hard for me to like quantify effort obviously but there there are bands where their aesthetic is you know that they don't care that they're just they're just playing and whatever comes out comes out um i think you can probably hear it on sloppier punk punk influenced records obviously anything noise core you know that's I mean, they're not real. They're not even really playing real songs in noise core. It, but then we were kind of like, what, what, what is, well, what is a song? In this year and age, or this day and age, it's hard to really. Sometimes it's hard to pin it down. You know. I mean, I think about my studies with avant-garde music, and the idea of the song was destroyed long time ago. It's just mm-hmm. that the music that we listen to, which is like an extension of the Romantic period is still catching up and that's why artists like juke kite or Gite, sorry i can't yep. say that yep. are so controversial because he's using the 1950s as the module for his music and uh you know as we progress with in the quotey things extreme music we will catch up to that and it'll be really bizarre when that will be like the main kind of style of music It'll just take time. Mm. I'm not I sure if I agree. Not... <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure. I think that uh, the audience of death metal will accept that. You know, um, that I think death metal is notoriously conservative. Um, we really dislike change. You know, people can't stand deathcore. They can't stand metalcore. They can't stand a. Uh, gen or whatever so i think when we've hit a point where underground music starts this underground extreme metal music starts to imitate you know uh like classical music from the 50s i I don't think people will accept it i i I find it very hard to believe that you know it'll ever be anything more than just a curiosity in in extreme metal I mean, there are people like Ron Sword who have been outfitting guitars to have quarter tones, uh, a quarter tone for the layman being like uh, half of a note that we would expect to hear, I guess would be like the best way to describe it. I could go like deep into it between a C and a C sharp there. Perfect. Um, and Ron Sword is fairly successful. Uh, his death metal band mm-hmm. is still in obscurity, but. I do, th- I do think that it's accepted very well in its circles, and I think it would be very interesting to hear more of that in the death metal circle. 
I think some of the so, closest that we get within the world of death metal comes from people like Gorguts who, like Luke LeMay, very explicitly doing that kind of thing. Like, he very vocally says that. But we even already see, as much as I adore Pleiades Dust, and I think it's a masterwork of a record, you go to, like, a lay listener of death metal, and you're more common here, like, I don't really like the 30-minute long one. That was too much. And I'm like, you're wrong. You're wrong, and you'll suffer in hell when you die because this is wrong, and God doesn't like it. But who? You know. <laughs> so I, I am so, I'm a little bit skeptical that everyone will sound like Jute Guy given enough time. That would rule. But I don't, I don't I'm think I'm not that's saying true. within the next 50 years or anything like that. I think music will become an alien thing over the next couple centuries. Oh, that's without a doubt. I think, I think that's very true. Yeah. So, going going back to that thing about Ron Sword, actually, yeah, you know, the whole microtonal thing. Actually, um, I recently, uh, whoa, who's that? I I, I recently uh, mixed um, an album that my friend did, and he tuned. I believe he pulled out all the frets on his guitar, and he tuned it to. Uh, I think 17 equal temperament. Oh, that, that means nice. Nor- normally, uh, like for anyone listening who doesn't know normally, um, you know, from C to the next C an octave up, it's divided into 12 steps. And then what my friend did, basically he divided that into 17 steps. So there's the space between each note is not, you know, what you, uh, are accustomed to hear. But yeah, so both him and um, this other guy he used to collaborate with, Voidcraft, they do this kind of um, microtonal black metal thing. And then there's also Kostnateni, uh, who does microtonal stuff. But when I listen to their microtonal music, I don't really see it as like an extension of, uh, you know, like the classical music from 50 years ago. Um, it sounds, at least to me, it sounds like they're still working firmly within the framework of extreme metal as we understand it. You know, there, there has to be riffs, there has to be, you know, blast beats, there has to be growled vocals or screamed or whatever. And, um, you know, there, there's a recognizable sense of, uh, you know, it, it, it's recognizably metal. You know, the using microtones makes it sound a little different. You know, it, it's not what you are used to when you think of you know, metal. But I think it, it's still really re- recognizably metal. And then when I when I think of, uh, I mean, not just Cage, because you know, Cage is kind of yeah. I I, I don't really know how to <laughs> how to classify Cage, but. Um, I guess when I think of modern music, I don't really immediately think of, uh, you know, kind of the same thing as before, but slightly different. You know, I, I guess I think of it more as like, kind of like a radical smashing of traditions. Does that make sense? 
It does. I mean, that's that's sort of the standard. Um, I, I come from a very mild academic background, and that's sort of the defining aspect of modernity versus contemporary music. So like something contemporary, it's just whatever's happening now. But modernity is specifically destroying tradition like and that can happen at any moment. You can have a new modernism that's reacting against the old one, but merely replicating something wouldn't be modern no matter when you're making it. Yeah, it's like when when do you actually become truly like when do you when do you I always describe it as when bands and this seems to happen very very not often when do they when do they reach into the future and bring something back to the present like and I that, think that. Yeah. That touches on something that Andrew said before that I think is very true and we sometimes are loath to we actually have a whole segment about this coming up as well. We're loath to admit this in metal sometimes but it's very much an iterative space. It's not necessarily built around massive sea changes. Those occur and we remember them and we even value them. But for the most part, when I say death metal, you know what to hear in your head. There may be some mild differences, but there is a death metal sound. And as a point to what you're making, I agree with you that if someone strongly deviates from that and then attempts to call it death metal, the death metal faithful will go, maybe even what you made was good, but it's not death metal. We even see that a lot with with black metal, where there's a lot of bands who are like, we're a black metal band. And it's like, maybe it makes more sense to call you an experimental music band or like a progressive music band. And maybe you even have black metal, but you don't sound like Dark Throne or Mayhem. You just have some tremolo riffs. Not sure if that counts. And this only occurs because we view metal as this iterative thing. I mean, it's one of the biggest things that we love and also loathe about, say, like, traditional heavy metal. If I say that, you know exactly what it sounds like, whether it came out in 2020 or 1980. And this is both its biggest... We sometimes have angst about this because it's like, well, it's not good because it's not radically changing. Or we say, like, a critical comment about it is like, well, you compared it to other bands, and that's not approaching it on its own terms. And it's like, well, most of these mean to situate against situate themselves against their peers like a band playing old school death metal in 2020 wants to be situated next to dismember so saying that they're wholly separate doesn't really get at what they're doing because they're not trying to be wholly, wholly separate it's not good or bad to be separate or to be together it's just sort of and i do think that is for better or worse something that's been kind of baked into heavy metal over time is that like, if you tell me this is a death metal record, it better have some death metal riffs. <laughs> yeah. Andrew, any last thoughts on that on that note? I think that's a very interesting point to kind of land on as far as what's modern, what's not, and what's actually radical, what's not, and also what's familiar or what's completely different and what do we call well, what do we call any of this stuff? So Yeah, I mean I, I personally I, I have a lot of um angst over whether i can even consider what i do as art you know because i have i guess i have an image of art as kind of breaking traditions and um and uh, making something new and i i have a strong feeling that you know modern death metal bands they're making great records but they're also making 
I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really call it an imitation, but there's something very specific that they're trying to emulate and they want to evoke a very specific um, feeling, but it's definitely not new. Um, I feel like what I'm doing is not particularly new either. And so sometimes that really frustrates me. And, and you know, like Langdon said, it, metal is a very iterative music. You know, it's kind of like a, it has like a tradition. It has, the culture kind of expects, you know, slow growth. Um, if you do something too different, you know, people, people don't accept it. So I don't know. I, sometimes I just feel really frustrated about what, um, what, about what I do, you know, cause I, I feel like you know, I, I'm just remixing my favorite, my favorite records, if you can call it that. Last question. Is it fun? Oh, hell yeah. Fuck yeah. That's the, <laughs> so, uh, that's yeah. the important thing to me. Like if if I didn't have fun doing what I was doing, mm-hmm. you know, I, I why bother, right? Exactly. Yeah. I'm looking at Chicago burden, grind like, time that. and I'm like, how could someone not be like I imagine that's a just a goddamn hoot to make. <laughs> it also helps that those riffs rip. Like <laughs> it's you're you're not kidding with the riffs. It's just jokey titles. Love it. No, I I am two hundred percent serious about every title. Uh, on the records (laughs) thank you for listening you can subscribe to Screaming Bloody Oranges the Invisible Oranges podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify Google Podcasts Podbean and other streaming services We'll make a post on our website at www.invisibleoranges.com to accompany the release of each episode. Visit us anytime for more in-depth heavy metal coverage that goes a step above and beyond.